Okay, great to be with you again this morning. Let's read, shall we, from the book of Romans. We're spending this this year looking through Romans chapter by chapter, and we've reached chapter 7 already. That's not bad. There are only 16 chapters. So uh, let's have a look at chapter 7 this morning. It's quite a tricky chapter, and we're going to take the whole thing on in, on in one. So we won't read the whole thing. I'll just read a few verses, and then we'll get started with the talk, and uh, we'll read some more as we need it as time goes by. So let's read uh, verses um, 1 to 6 of Romans chapter 7. Here we go. go. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law. And she's not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. In the same way, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That's enough to read to start with. It's quite complicated stuff, isn't it? Here's a picture from one of the most interesting experiments, I think, of the 20th century. 1931. The, the, the wee lad on the run is called Donald. He's the son of uh, a researcher called W.N. Kellogg. And Kellogg decided in 1931 to see what it would be like if a child and an ape were brought up alongside one another. How would the development go? If they thought they were brother and sister, if they played together every day, if there was no difference between the two of them, but they were both treated exactly alike, what would actually happen? Well, that's what they tried. And it lasted for about 16 months. They played together. Donald was told that the ape, Gua, was his sister. And that Gua and he were dressed alike, fed alike, disciplined alike. All kinds of things were done to them. They were given the same amount of cuddles and things like that. And it was interesting to see what happened because they developed in different ways. The chimp was soon able to do things a little bit more than Donald was. And that's because the the, the rise from a babyhood to adulthood in a chimp is much quicker than it is for for, for, uh, human children. But then that development stopped a little bit. So here's here's an article from the Montreal Gazette in 1954, looking back on the experiment and saying what happened. And it said, little chimps prove smarter than a human baby after one year. And that's right, but it's not the end of the story. At the age of 12 months, the baby chimp could walk upright and responded to 20 simple commands like shake hands and open the door. The child could only respond to three. (laughs) But as time went by, uh, things went different. Early in the second year, the child began to use words and phrases quite spontaneously and to imitate the action of its elders in a way that the animal could never manage. Only in a few muscular activities like climbing, jumping, and using its feet for holding or grasping did the chimpanzee finally outdistance the child. And 16 months after they started the experiment, they ended it because it was pretty obvious that the two animals (laughs) were taking different paths from one another. And this is basically the way that a child's brain and an ape's brain develops. At nine months, we're told, if if you... 
cuts into their heads, don't do this at home, you'll find that a brain and a child brain look exactly the same. But from that point, they start diverging massively so that you end up with that brain at the top there, which is Donald, <laughs> and this brain, brain at the bottom, which is Gua. And the child can do an awful lot more than the best of the animals, the most intelligent of the animals actually can. There's a tremendous divergence. And uh, that's partly because, as, as we saw with baby Donald, he could start copying other people. He could make choices about the way he was going to behave and not going to behave. Whereas with the chimp, Gua was just hardwired to behave in certain ways and didn't have many messages. And human beings can respond to language as well as chimps can. Simple command, shut that door or whatever. Yeah, they can manage. Uh, but uh, anything more complicated, things that involve patterns of thought, no, they can't do it. And so one of the things about you and me that's not true about most of the rest of the animal popul uh, population, any of the animal population uh, in terms of um, uh, doing it properly, is that we can make choices. We can look back to our past and think about what we got wrong. We can look forward to the future and work out what will happen if we do certain things. And we're not just stuck in the present. And so human beings have all got a sense of, I must do this or I, I, I can't do that. We have to make choices between activities all the time. And now, how do you do that? You can't make every choice on a new basis every time. You've got to have some rules that you go by. And so human beings have developed rules as well, laws by which they operate. And uh, the Bible says that God has hardwired something into the human system called a conscience that tells you what's right and what's wrong. Now, it's not always infallible. If you're brought up in a cannibal tribe, you might think it is good to eat someone else's grandmother. It is not good to eat my grandmother. You know? And your values might be a bit twisted. But in every culture, people have a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And that's what your conscience does for you. Now, the Bible also says that God has told us the kinds of things that we are supposed to do and not supposed to do. Some of that's hard word in us as well. If you look at the moral commands of all the great religions, you find they all include some of the same content, like do to others what you would expect to be done to you. And you'll find that in religion after religion after religion. It's as if the human personality has been built in such a way that it responds naturally to certain morals. And even if human culture twists that a bit and you get different civilizations eating their grandmothers and not eating their grandmothers, nonetheless, that basic sense of, 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 of uh, what we should do is built into us. Doesn't mean we do it, though. We still have to make the choices. And the Bible says, too, that God has done something special. When he chose the Jews to be his special people, the ones through whom he was going to reintroduce himself to the human race, the ones where he was going to show what it would be like if God was in charge of a nation, he gave them his law, a whole pattern of commands to make the life of that nation centered around their relationship with God. And... In the first chapters of Romans that we've been looking at, Paul's talked a lot about the law and how nobody keeps it. Not the Jews, to whom it's supposed to belong, nor the Gentiles, who have got their own law code, but so many of whom who are reading this or listening to Romans being read out, uh, know about the Jewish law. They've been hanging around the synagogue. We can't keep it. We just don't keep it. And so in chapter 6, if you remember, 
He was saying that uh, if we're under the law, in the sense that the law controls our lives, we cannot be the kind of people we're supposed to be. Because we're all perverse. We all break that law. But we, he says at the end of chapter 6, you don't need to be slaves to sin. Once you become a Christian, there's a, a new power inside you, which means that you can either be a slave to sin, or you can be what he calls a slave to righteousness. It's like Bob Dylan put it in his famous song after he became a Christian. You've got to serve somebody. <laughs> you can't just be on your own. So either you're serving sin or else you're serving a new master. Now, he said all of this so far, but there are some questions about the law and sin and that sort of stuff that he wants to talk about in chapter 7. He says it affects all of us. It's not just a Jewish thing. And sometimes we show what God has imprinted in our character. He said back in chapter 2, when Gentiles who do not have the law uh, do by nature things required by the law, they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, hardwired into their system. Their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them. Oh, you idiot, look what you've done. And sometimes even defending them. Oh, that was pretty good, wasn't it? I'm better than I thought I was. But we are this mixture of good and evil, aren't we? We're this mixture of bad and good. And he says, as long as you're under the law, you're, you're in problems. <laughs> and so he asked three questions in the chapter. The first one is the question that he asks in the verses that we just read. And that's the question, is the law a life sentence? Are we stuck there forever? Is there a way that we can break away from just being under the law and uh, uh, unable to live the way that we know we ought to live? And he's already talked about that, so he hasn't got much to say about that. Then he's got to ask the question, is the law a bad thing? I mean, if we are all sinners, because we know what the law is and we don't do it, then does the law really have any purpose? Why did God give the law if it's just going to make us miserable? And the third thing he's got to ask at the end of the chapter, as we'll see, is this question. Is the law an escape route? If we know what the law is, does that help us live better lives and be perfect people? And those are the three questions he's got to ask. So let, let's look at them. The first one, as I say, is, is the law a life sentence? And this is where he talks about the fact that the law, any kind of law, is only binding on you as long as you're alive. Because this is the situation you're in, the human being who's alive... This is the situation you're in when you're a human being who's dead. <laughs> the law has ceased to apply. There you are on the trolley with a ticket around your, your, your big toe, and uh, there is no way that the law can get at you anymore. While you're alive, the law can say, you're a sinner, you're a failure, you're doing wrong, you're a loser. But when you're dead, you're a loser. I'm not, I'm dead. <laughs> End of story. It just doesn't get through to you any longer. And uh, we see that uh, principle again and again in history. This is Caroline Norton, who lived in the 19th century. And when she was a young girl, she was married by her mother to an older man. And you didn't say no in those days. She didn't love him, but she was married at age 19 to a man called Joe Norton, who was much older than her. And he looked like a reasonable catch, although she took a long time to say yes. But uh, he turned out to be a drunkard and a bully and somebody who assaulted her and, uh, and, and beat her up at night. Um, and she was assaulted and beaten by him, but he also asked her to use her influence or her family's influence to get him a job. And she knew a very senior politician, Lord Melbourne, so she went to him and he got the job. Was he grateful to his wife? No, he wasn't. He kept on going into fits of rage, especially when he was drunk, assaulting her. At one point, she locked himself in, herself into a room because she was so terrified. And uh, he not only broke the door down, but broke the frame away from the wall uh, to get at her. So he was a pretty violent character. In the end, she had three children and he took them all away one day because he was convinced she was an unfit mother. 
and one of his cousins uh, took uh, possession of the children and uh, said that the mother could not come and see them. She didn't she denied any access to her own kids. And this was all perfectly legal because she was married to him. And in those days, it meant she was his property. Everything she had now belonged to him. Now, she was a, a novelist and a poet, and all of her earnings went to George. He was living off her money. And the way that the law was, he could have kept his mistress, if he'd had one, he had several, but anyway, he could have kept his mistress on his wife's earnings, and that would have been quite legal, and she couldn't have said a word about it. Uh, in the end, he, he became convinced that she had had an affair with the politician that she got the job from, and uh, so he vilified her. He went to the papers with stories about her and her awful behaviour, which weren't true. He even took the man to court, and there was a trial where some of his servants said that they had seen her and this, this guy doing things that weren't right, and they were all proven to be liars. The whole thing was laughed out of court. But you know what? He gained his status in society. She because her name had been besmirched by being dragged through the courts, found that nobody would talk to her any longer. And it was all because she was married to him. She was bound to him. Eventually, uh, the law changed to allow the mother access to the children, at which point he took the children off to Scotland and put them to school there. Because in Scotland, the same law didn't apply, and he could keep the children away from, from his mother any longer. One of the children, William, had a, an accident one day riding a pony, and uh, he was very, very ill indeed, and she wasn't told until he was at the point of death. Rushed north to Scotland to see him and found he'd died before she got there. And this was all perfectly legal in the 19th century. Eventually, she was given custody of the children again, not because George had suddenly become a nice guy, but because he was short of money. And he knew that she had a, an annuity from her family that he couldn't touch, and he needed to get his hands on some money. So he agreed that uh, they would sign a contract, and uh, she would uh, get the children back, and he'd get some money every month. Well, that didn't last either, because he then withdrew the money that he was supposed to give to her as a result, and uh, there was nothing she could do. And so the story went on. In the end, he died, and she married somebody that she had been friends with for a long time. Three months later, she herself was dead. <laughs> it's a shame. It's a scandal, isn't it? But it wasn't until he was dead that she could get away from what he was doing to us. And Paul is saying here, you know, the fact about us is that we have died if we are Christians ourselves. But he says, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. And when the body of Christ was hung on the cross, when it was tortured, when Jesus' life ended on our account, we died with him, if we're Christians. And as a result, we are dead as far as the law is concerned. And so Paul says we're not under that condemnation of the law any longer. We're set free to belong to somebody else. And we're set free to live in a relationship with God, which allows us uh, to bear fruit. And the fruit that we bear in this new relationship is fruit to God. We've borne the wrong kind of fruit for years. Sometimes we've done the wrong thing again and again. Sometimes we've done the right thing, but only to get a, a reputation for ourselves or only because other people are watching or only because we want to feel good about uh, God or, or so, all sorts of reasons. Now we can just serve properly. We can do things the way we're supposed to do them just because we love God and for no other reason. So he says, no, the law is not a life sentence. There is a way of escape. But then he says, hang on a minute. If the law leads us into this kind of problem to start with, why did God have the, the idea? Isn't it a very bad idea? And he asks, is the law a bad thing? That's the next few verses, so let's look at them. Verse 7, what shall we say then, he says? Is the law sin? Certainly not. 
Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was, for example, if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, using the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bid life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good, but did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So the law is not a bad thing, he says. Something can be good. It's holy, it's righteous, it's good. It's a great idea that God had. The trouble is that something that can be good and brilliantly useful, and the law has its uses, as he points out here, but still misused. What you're seeing on the left-hand side of the screen there is Conrad Wilhelm Röntgen's original X-ray machine. I'm glad they don't use those in hospitals now, but still, that's, that's a fantastic breakthrough in 1895 when Röntgen discovered X-rays. And radioactivity is a tremendously useful thing, but it can also kill you. This is Maria Skłodowska, or Marie Curie, as she's known better nowadays, and she was the Polish-French scientist who discovered radioactivity. Röntgen found out x-ray machines work, but he wasn't sure why. And she was the one, along with her pioneering husband, who won Nobel Prizes for showing how it all worked. And uh, she was an amazing woman. That's her uh, Nobel Prize for physics. She got one for chemistry later in her life. She's the only woman ever to have done so, and the only one of two scientists ever to have done both physics and chemistry together. And she found something of immense usefulness. Because when you've got something wrong inside your body, to be able to see what's going on in there is incredibly useful. In the old days, they would have had to have you open. I'm very glad that they don't do that any longer. And it's got smaller uses as well. I mean, standing in the security queue at uh, Munich Airport just yesterday on my way back from Austria, I was looking up at the, uh, the screen and suddenly thought, hello, wait a minute, that's my suitcase. I could see things inside my suitcase and think, oh, I wish I packed it better. You know, but it was up there on the screen. And I'm very, very glad indeed, looking at the line of the queue yesterday, that uh, they have x-rays that are able to see inside suitcases rather than having to open every single one and go through it and see if you've got something illegitimate in there. If they did, that would take hours getting through. But as is, they can scan a suitcase, oh, dirty socks, that's all right. You know, if you go in front of them without any problem whatsoever. And so x-rays can be very useful. But you know what? Marie Curie died because of her exposure to radiation. And we only realized after a while how dangerous a thing it can be. So something that is good can be misused, and it can be actually dangerous in the end. So it's the same thing with the law. The law does good things, but you have to realize that it can only show those things up. It doesn't necessarily solve the problem. So the law shows that we have a problem to start with. If we didn't have the law, we, didn't know, we wouldn't know how far we'd fallen short of what God expected when he created us. And Paul says, you know, at one point, I was alive. I felt quite good about myself. And then the law came and, oh boy, I died. Because I began to realize how far short I was of what I ought to be. And without God's law, we could wander around and think, well, I'm quite a good guy, really. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm quite a nice character and I'll uh, probably get into heaven because I'm okay. 
And I'll bet that at the air show next week, you'll find a lot of those 165,000 people are wandering around thinking almost exactly the same thing. I'm okay. I'm all right. There's nothing much the matter with me. But you know, there is something wrong with an awful lot of people. And it doesn't always come out in dramatic ways, like going into an elementary school and shooting 19 kids and two teachers dead. That's the extreme. But for a lot of people, life just does not fit together and make sense. And the reason is because they've never got to grips with themselves and the depths of what's wrong inside themselves. And I think, actually, we're living at a time in history which is quite dangerous because people don't tend to feel that morals and values matter an awful lot. And you hear people saying, oh, I've got my own truth. I must be true to myself, whatever happens. And they use that as an excuse for bending the laws, breaking the rules, um, walking out on their marriages, breaking commitments, all sorts of things. And you will never find happiness that way. The reason that we have rules about right and wrong is because those rules make life more fruitful, more prosperous, more happy. And if we don't know what's right and what's wrong, then we're in trouble. Or if we're confident we do know and uh, you know, we're pretty vague about it, well, that's what causes all sorts of, of problems, not just in our lives, but in society as a whole. And one of our problems right now is we don't know what's right, we don't know what's wrong. And the law shows where the problem lies. Also, the law shows how far it goes inside us. Because Paul, when he was, before he became a Christian, used to read the Ten Commandments and think, I'm doing fine, I'm doing fine, I'm doing fine, I'm doing fine, until he got to number ten, which is, thou shalt not covet. And the thing is, the Pharisees, to whom Paul belonged, said, thought that sin was a matter of your actions. Doing the wrong thing, you know, kicking your wife, stealing money. As long as you didn't do those things, you were all right. But number ten... It's all about what happens inside your own head. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not go around thinking the wrong thoughts of other people in their possessions. And he began to realize it went deeper into his system than he thought. It wasn't just a case of the decisions he took. It was the whole way he thought as well. And the law does a third thing. It indicates where the root of the problem actually is. Because the root of the problem isn't necessarily the things we do. It's the tempting to think in a certain way. To think as if I am the most important person in the universe. I am the one that ought to be able to do things and get away with them. And a lot of sin is about power. It's about, ha, I can do this and nobody's watching so they can't stop me. I mean, when you look at some of the horrible scandals that have been in the Christian church over the last few years. How can the son's great preacher, who's the uh, uh, president of uh, the biggest Christian university in America, not only allow one of the, the, the university employees to sleep with his wife, but go along and watch while it happens. Ugh, it's dreadful. Is that man a twisted sexual pervert? The answer is no, he's not really. He was just doing that because he thought he could get off with it. Nobody would know, and it gave him a feeling of power. And often sin is like that. St. Augustine, back in 400 AD, talk, told a story about what it was like when he was young. Near our vineyard, he says, there was a pear tree loaded with fruit. Though the fruit was not particularly attractive, either in colour or in taste, I and some other youths conceived the idea of shaking the pears off this tree and carrying them away. We set out late at night and stole all the fruit that we could carry. And this was not to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few, but then we threw the rest to the pigs. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that wasn't allowed. He said, I had plenty of better pairs of my own. I took these ones only so that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away. And all I tasted in them was my own iniquity, 
which I enjoyed very much. That's very us talking, isn't it? And we can all relate to that. And that's the real root of sin. This desire to be in charge of my own universe and blow everybody else. And when you live that way, then you're in serious trouble. So Paul writes, I can hear you say if the law code was as bad as all that, it's no better than sin itself. That's certainly not true, he says. The law code had a perfectly legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, moral behavior would be mostly guesswork. Apart from the succinct scriptural command, you shall not covet. I could have dressed covetousness up to look like a virtue and ruined my life with it. That's the message translation of some of the verses that we've just read. And you can see what it's saying. It's so possible to fool yourself that what you're actually doing is right when it's wrong. And sin is incredibly insidious and it uses the law to get where it gets to. And so Paul says there's nothing wrong about the law, but we have to be careful that uh, um, we use it in the right way and use it to see just what's going wrong in our own hearts. But then the third question comes, haven't you? Doesn't it? If you see what's wrong with you, if you realize there is something in you that a holy God must find horrific and wants to do something about, then how do you get out of it? By the law itself? Is the law a plan of escape? And this is where you reach the, the verses in the chapter, um, and I've been speaking for over 20 minutes already, um, so it's, and we're going to look briefly, don't worry, um, where theologians have argued for centuries. Let me just read the verses to you first of all then. Okay, here we are, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And it's a brilliant description, isn't it, of the way you feel trapped when you know what you want to do and what you ought to do and everything inside you says, let's do it. And something else says, no, you don't. Sorry, you're my slave. There's no way you can do it. Now, the big question about these verses is, this guy, this I who's being talked about here, is he a Christian or is he not? Is Paul talking about himself since he became a Christian? Or is he talking about himself before he was a Christian? And many great commentators have said he's not a Christian. Craig Keener, Douglas Moo, John Wesley, Tom Wright, I've checked them all out in, in your interests. I worked hard on this one. And uh, yet, a greater bunch of critics also says, yes, he is. Charles Hodge, Robert Haldane, Tim Keller, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Barnes, Matthew Henry Spurgeon, old Uncle Tom Cobley, and all. And uh, when you look at the two different sides, you can see that either thing could be true here. 
We're talking about somebody who is grappling with sin and unable to conquer it themselves, who keeps on being dragged down by the wrong thing. Now, if this is talking about somebody who's already a Christian, what can you say? I think there are three things you can say. If he's a Christian, this is what the passage tells you. First of all, you will never get away from the sense of being a sinner. God has forgiven you for your sins. But if you ever think, I'm okay, I'm fine, I had a few minor problems, but I'm all right now, then you've lost perspective. You will always be someone who is a sinner, someone who is capable of, of getting outside of the, the scope of the power of God and doing wrong things. There is, the, the book of Ecclesiastes says, there is no righteous man on earth who never does what is wrong. We all will do wrong things. We make wrong choices. And sometimes that's motivated by the old nature that still lives in us and wants to tempt us to keep on doing wrong. Now that leads us on to the second point, which is you'll never get out of this struggle against sin. Because inside you there is an old nature which you've had since birth, and there is a new nature made over in the image of God. And those two natures are fighting one another all the time. And that struggle will never end until one moment. And that will be the moment when you stand in front of Jesus Christ at his second coming. And your eyes lock with his and suddenly you're transformed into his likeness. Until then, it will be an ongoing process. Paul says in Philippians, the book we're looking at tonight, I'm convinced that the person who has begun the good work in you that's Jesus, will continue it right through to the day of his appearing. In other words, until you see Jesus, there is always going to be work to be done on you. But there's a third thing that you can say. This is really talking about Christians. You can move on into chapter 8. This is not the way it has to be forever. Because although that struggle will be there, and sometimes it can be intense, and it can be shaming, and you can feel just absolutely helpless in the power of sin, you're not in the power of sin. And Paul says at the start of chapter 8, and once again, this is the message translation, which I find very helpful. I've tried for a thing and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. No, this is not chapter 8. This is the verse we read at the end of our chapter. Sorry. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. And in chapter 8, as we will see, yes, the good news comes next week, as we will see, God talks about a new law at work in our life that raises us up against the law that always drags us down. And if you're a Christian, then you can hook into that power and that reality, and that changes everything. Okay, that's if this, these, these last verses are talking to people who are Christians. How about... If you're not a Christian, and this is the last thing we've got to say. You see how cowardly I am? I read the works of these great commentators and think, who's right? I think, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm giving you both sides of it. Anyhow, you can make up your own mind about who's being spoken about in these last few verses on the I chart, as one commentator said, calls it, you know, I, 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 at the end of uh, chapter 7. If he's not a Christian then, what does this passage tell us? I think just two things, and with these two things, I'm, I'm finishing out of here. First of all, I think what he's saying is don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself that you're okay. There are big problems and contradictions in your life that must not be covered over. You need somebody to set you straight. Straight with yourself, straight with other people, and especially straight with God. And when you have that that's coming into your life and changing you, then you're going somewhere. Until that point, you're just a mess of unresolved contradictions. Some people commit suicide. Some people end up doing something totally stupid. 
other people just struggle through to the end of their lives with a vague sense of dissatisfaction and a kind of, well, let's just see what happens philosophy. But you can be right with God. You can know him. You can have a new peace in your life and a sense that sinner though you are, God is working to make you into something different. There's an old hymn that goes, something beautiful, something good. All my confusion he understood. All I had to offer him was helplessness and strife. And he made something beautiful out of my life. And that's the way it works. So don't fool yourself. And second, don't stay where you are. Find out what the, the, the deal is that God's offering you. Accept the offer while you have chance, a chance. Get to know the God who can change and transform human life and become part of his family too. That's enough, I reckon. Steve, are you coming back? Or? Yeah. I'll just pray for a second then. Okay, let's just pray some of that stuff in, shall we, while we, 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 we think about it and instantly we back up here. Heavenly Father, we've been through some difficult stuff this morning. It's a tortuous part of the argument, and the, when we read it first, the temptation is to think, oh, well, this applies to the first century. It's not really asking, answering questions for today. But what uh, we've tried to see this morning is that it's very much in to date. It's talking about a universal human problem and pointing the out of it too. Help us to realize that your holy law is not a bad thing, but simply shows us questions that need an answer. And although the law cannot answer those questions by itself, it puts us in the right direction. It helps us see that if we die to our old life, through your death on the cross, Lord Jesus, and become part of God's family, then there can be change. We'll always know we're sinners. We'll always struggle with the wrong kind of stuff inside. But we will also know the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus makes us free from the law of sin and death. And so we pray just that nobody in this room will miss out on the awesome experience you want them to have. For your name's sake. Amen.